Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 155. It's always sunny in Mercia. The gang throws a party. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Jill, Sam, and Wayne for contributing already. Let's start with a question from member Mike, not to be confused with Magic Mike. Mike asks, have battle tactics changed over the years, or are they still standing shoulder to shoulder in a shield wall? That's a great question. While there might have been small changes, the Anglo-Saxons in this period were still an infantry force. In fact, as late as the Battle of Hastings, which is nearly 200 years away, the Anglo-Saxons rode their horses to the battleground, then dismounted and formed a shield wall. So it's doubtful that much will have changed in how they are arranging their forces from the days of Penda. I hope that answers it. Thanks for the question. Back to our story. When we last left off, King Offa of Mercia was doing pretty well. He had just received papal support for his plans of succession, and he was demonstrating that he was a mover and shaker, not just among the English kingdoms, but on the world stage. On his southern border, King Chinewulf of Wessex was dead, and there was now a friendly king that sat the throne of Wessex. And even though his relationship with the center of Christendom began with an awkward rumor about an overthrow, it seems that Offa had fully moved past that point, and now the Pope was rather positive about his rule. Actually, it wasn't just the Pope who was positive. He seemed to be getting along with Charlemagne. Even Charlemagne's instructor, Alcuin, wrote glowingly to King Offa, congratulating him on the emphasis he placed upon learning within his kingdom. Everything was coming up Offa, and one of the things that might have been going for him was how his court was reorganizing. Rather than following in the model of some of his neighboring kingdoms, Offa was modernizing, and that's led some scholars to argue that he was inspired by Carolingian concepts of rule. And that makes sense. There was a flood of material coming from Charlemagne's court on the nature of kingship and of rule, and so he might have been emulating his Frankish neighbors. Maybe. Some of these notions, though, might have already been known to him. Don't forget that Charlemagne's court was heavily influenced by Irish, Northumbrian, and other British thinkers. Irish and Anglo-Saxon scholars played a key role in shaping the Carolingian court. So it is also possible that Offa was just drawing from similar sources as Charlemagne, and that the changes in his court weren't the result of Frankish influence at all. But whatever the case, his kingdom was growing. It was modernizing. And it was looked upon favorably by major figures in continental Europe. And actually, while it is possible that he developed much of this through the influence of thinkers from the British Isles, there is one area in which he definitely was influenced by the Franks. Anointing. The Franks had been moistening their leaders and successors since about the 750s, and for good reason. Anointing was old school, and it drew upon Old Testament notions of kingship, which can be found in the Bible with the anointing of Saul, among others. It had a gravitas of its own, and harkened back to Jesus. The thing is, that Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. It was a title. And one translation of that title is Anointed One. So anointing carried with it an aura of authority, 
And after seeing how it benefited the Carolingians, Offa wanted his son, Egfrith, anointed as his successor. And that brings us to 787, one year after the big church council that we talked about last week. On that year, we're told that a synod was held at Chelsea in accordance with the plans laid out by the papal legate. All the major figures of the English church, as well as the major political leaders, arrived at Chelsea to discuss the matters that were brought before them. Naturally, among those matters was Archbishop Jambert's request that the monastery at Cookham be given to him. The truth of it is, any time two or more churchmen gathered, it seems that Jambert started talking about Cookham. But so far, no one had seen fit to give it to him. And true to form, this council also refused. You might be surprised that his requests kept getting shot down, and also that he was so utterly outmaneuvered at the council we talked about last week. I mean, Jambert was the Archbishop of Canterbury, so that might make you think that he carried a great deal of sway on the island. But based upon how he fared in these councils, it doesn't look like he was particularly popular in ecclesiastical or secular circles. He might have just been a bit unlikable. And you can have all the fancy titles in the world, but if people don't want to work with you and you can't get along with others, you aren't going to get very far. So, J. Bert's plea for the monastery fell on deaf ears. And besides, the synod had more pressing matters at hand. Specifically, Offa's plan to have his son Egfrith consecrated. The plan for consecration was endorsed by the papal legate, and for good reason. It wouldn't have just made King Offa happy, something that the understandably nervous pope would have wanted, but it also gave the king a duty to rule in a Christ-like fashion. So as far as the papacy was concerned, this was a win-win. The English members of the church knew it was something that absolutely had to happen, but it was also clear that Jambert was not interested in doing it, even though, you know, this was actually sort of his job. So in that situation, what do you do? Well, Offa wasn't paying all those tithes to Rome for nothing. He had a plan. The idea was put before the synod that they would create a new archbishopric located at Litchfield. The record states that after that idea was floated, it became a, quote, contentious synod, end quote. Yeah, I bet it did. I also bet this is an example of a classic English understatement. This wouldn't have just been a minor disagreement. This would have been like dropping a bomb on the group. Not only would it take power away from the Archbishop of Canterbury, which I'm sure Jambert would have loved, but it also would have involved the seizure of the lands at Litchfield, which meant that East Anglia would have had its land annexed and given to the church. That was probably something that East Anglia would not have been excited about. But... East Anglia might not have been all that independent at this point in history, so the group might have not cared all that much what they thought. Instead, it seems that the opinions that really mattered were those that were held by King Offa. And King Offa felt that the new sea was needed due to how large Mercia and its protectorate was becoming. Basically, because he controlled so much land in the Midlands, he argued that it made sense that they would have their own archbishopric to guide the flock. That's a nice spin on how expansionist King Offa's policies were. Not, hey, I fought a lot of wars and won a lot of land, give me a present. Instead, it was, somehow I ended up governing over a lot of people, and they really need their own spiritual leader. It was good work. But despite that spin, 
According to the later account of King Conewulf of Mercia, Offa was seeking the archbishopric because he hated Jambert, and he also hated the men of Kent. And that sounds... believable. It would have been one hell of a strike back against an archbishop that had been a significant thorn in Offa's side. Though I should point out that our source for that interpretation, King Conewulf, well, he was trying to distinguish himself from Offa and portray himself as a kinder, more godly Mercian king. So he wasn't exactly an unbiased source. On the other hand, looking at the record, it does appear that there was little love lost between Offa and Jambert. So Conewulf very well might have been telling the truth. Anyway, we're told that at that synod, quote, Archbishop Jambert lost a certain part of his province, end quote. The Mercian sees of Lichfield, Leicester, Lindsay, Worcester, and Hereford would now be subject to the new archbishopric. And it's thought that the East Anglian sees of Dunwich and Elmham might also have been transferred to Lichfield. This was going to be a major powerhouse in English church matters. And given how poorly things were going with Jambert, I'm sure the question of who should become the new archbishop was weighed quite heavily. And in the end, Offa chose the man himself. Higabert was called. And this might surprise you, but unlike Jambert, it looks like Higabert was totally on board with consecrating Egfrith. So a pallium was sent for, and it was received. It was official. He was now Archbishop Higabert of Lichfield. There's no evidence that Jambert pulled a Wilfred and made an appeal to Rome, trying to get it overturned. But he clearly was not happy, because while the Pope accepted Higabert, Jambert refused to recognize him. Not even a papal endorsement would make Jambert bury the hatchet. But no one seemed to care, and things moved incredibly quickly in 787, because as soon as the archbishopric was created, a pallium was sent for and received. And they must have used FedEx, because they still had time left in the year to anoint Egfrith, son of Offa, as the co-ruler of Mercia. It was done. Egfrith's rule was at last secure. Offa was the first English king to have this done, but he wouldn't be the last. Times were changing, and not just in the south, but also in the north. As you might remember, there were at least five families vying for the throne of Northumbria and they had already demonstrated that they were completely willing to kill in order to obtain it. The last time we talked about our northern friends, King Aethelred, son of Aethelwald Maul, was deposed and went into exile, probably into Francia. And the slain King Oswulf's son, Aethelwald, took the throne. That was probably a period of excitement for the people of Northumbria, because his grandfather, King Aidbert of Northumbria, was an extremely effective and popular king. And based upon how quickly he was installed on the throne, he probably had a great deal of support among the nobility. So for the last nine years, King Eilfwald has been ruling over Northumbria. In that time, he and his wife had two sons. So the line of succession should be secure. The trouble is that there were four other families that felt that they should hold the throne. So we're told that in 788, a conspiracy was hatched in the court by his own ealdormen, basically his upper-level thanes. And ealdorman Sitka murdered the king and placed Osred on the throne. Osred was the son of the exiled king Alcred, who dubiously claimed to be part of the line of Ida, but he almost certainly wasn't. 
If you're lost, it's okay. It's Northumbria. You're supposed to be lost. Basically, we have distant cousins, neighbors, and co-workers killing each other over a crown that no one can manage to hold on to for very long. Northumbria was a kingdom that could have, and probably should have, dominated the Heptarchy. But instead, they've been busy playing a lethal version of King of the Hill. And right now, thanks to a palace murder, King Osred, son of Alcred, was on top. These changes to English life were coming fast and furious now. Then, in the following year, 789, something curious happened on the southern coast. We've been talking about how the English kingdoms were becoming deeply involved in trade. Actually, much of the remainder of the story of Offa will revolve around trade. Commerce was an enormously big deal, and it's why towns like London and Ipswich were becoming economic powerhouses. With their growth, the appearance of strangers from strange lands was becoming a common sight in the coastal English towns. There were links into Francia and into the Mediterranean. And we know from digs that Scandinavian travelers must have occasionally reached Britain during the early Anglo-Saxon period. But the trip would have been perilous, so it might have been a rare event. However, since about the year 700, they were using true-keeled Norse longships, a design so ingenious that they could handle both river travel and the open sea. Consequently, the danger of sailing to Britain had been drastically reduced. So by the time of Offa, 90 years after this boat first started being seen, even Scandinavian traders were probably becoming known in Britannia. And in 789, three boats landed in Portland, in Dorset. Some chroniclers tell us that they came from Herethaland, which could either mean Hardeland in Denmark or Hordeland in Norway. And I hope I didn't butcher that. Regardless, we can be sure that they were Norsemen. The local officials, likely the Reeves for the local thane, rode out to greet the merchants. Now, just like today, there would have been traders who repeatedly made the same trips and would have had relationships with the local population. However, our details are sparse, so we don't know if the merchants were known to the officials or if they were new to Portland. Whatever the case, the Reeves probably expected nothing more than a polite discussion regarding goods and policies while they led them back into town. As they closed in, I wonder if they made note of how many men were with these merchants. Did they pause, seeing how many of them were armed? Or did they shrug it off and assume that the merchants were simply just a bit nervous? All we know is that once the reeves got close, weapons were drawn and they were cut down. After making short work of the local forces, the Norsemen quickly moved off the shore. We don't have a contemporary account of the specifics of what they did. We don't know how many they killed. We know very little. My guess is that at first, the English didn't flee. The reality of the situation probably didn't fully set in until the Norse took their first victim. And then the panic probably overwhelmed the community. To imagine how stunned these town folk must have been, this would have been like if a home and garden expo showed up to your area, and then rather than setting up, they whipped out guns and started sacking the city. Wessex was in shock. And given its close political ties with Offa, it can be assumed that it wasn't long before Mercia knew of the attack. But you have to look at this in context. From our vantage point, we're all too aware that the age of the Vikings is coming. But for the English, 
This was horrifying, but not necessarily a sign of things to come. At the time, it was a single isolated event that might have been looked at as an individual band of raiders who'd just gone rogue, rather than an indication of a cultural shift that was occurring in Scandinavia. It would have been terrifying, but there was no reason to assume it would happen again. And certainly, not on a large scale. So while we don't see grand defenses being constructed, that shouldn't surprise us. The English very well might have seen this as a single group that could be dealt with if they ever came back. Ironically, though, The Norse who went to Viking in Portland had done to the English almost exactly what they had done to the Romano-British several hundred years earlier. So, the English probably should have known better, if they had access to a record of what happened. Which is why reading and writing is so important. In response to this atrocity, Offa did what he did best. He took advantage of the situation. Wessex was in shock and wanted protection. So on that same year, we're told that he married one of his daughters to King Bjortric of Wessex. That gave him a direct familial link to his potential southern rival. And that connection allowed him to deepen Mercia's influence over the West Saxons. Wessex lost its independence and began to be ruled as a protected sub-kingdom of Mercia. A situation that would continue for quite some time. But before I wrap this up, I'd like to highlight the importance of what's happened in this episode in Mercia. At last, Egfrith's succession was secure. And when we look at it, we see shadows of how terrifying King Offa was. Alcuin might have written kind letters to Offa about his attention to education, but he, and probably the rest of the English upper classes, had private reservations about this Mercian king. Alcuin remarked in other private correspondence of, quote, how much blood the father shed to secure the kingdom for his son, end quote, and how he believed that the unity of the church in England was destroyed by a lust for power. And then, when it was reunified years later, it was remarked upon that it had been broken due to, quote, tyrannical power, end quote. But for King Offa, A unified English church simply was not as important as his own son. He would seek new rules of succession that required legitimate marriage. He would even kill his own kin. No cost was too great in order to ensure that Egfrith inherited the throne. And a cost was paid. And that might be why we read a letter from Alcuin urging Egfrith to not be unworthy of his noble birth. He couldn't come out and directly state his concerns about Offa's bloodlust while he was still alive, not if he wanted to stay safe. So instead, he was diplomatically saying, don't waste the opportunity that was given to you, because your succession has come at a significant price. It seems to me that Offa was an incredibly effective and formidable king, but he was also rather scary, which is why we see people bending to his will in life and then complaining about him as soon as he was in the ground. But they would have to wait a long time before they get that chance, because Ethelbald and Offa had some of the longest reigns of any Anglo-Saxon ruler. In fact, Ethelbald might be the longest reigning Anglo-Saxon king, and that could be part of why his ultimate successor, King Offa, was able to become so powerful. That level of continuity that Mercia was enjoying, even when you take into account the brief civil wars, gave Offa a serious advantage. 
For comparison, in the time where Mercia was ruled by just Aethelbald and Offa, we won't count the blip of what's-his-name in between the reigns since he never really seemed to have ruled. Anyway, during that time when Mercia just had those two kings, Northumbria had 12. And as anyone who's played Crusader Kings 2 can tell you, short reigns are disastrous for the health of a kingdom. And as soon as Offa became king, he went well beyond what Aethelbald had left him. He had more power and control over other kingdoms than Aethelbald, and he sought to exercise his power more directly. By this point, he controlled a vast territory from the Midlands, all the way down to the southern coast. He was slowly working to annex his neighbors, either formally or simply through assumptions and implications. And rather than hegemonic rule, it seems that Offa and others viewed this kingdom simply as Mercia, where other kings deserving of the title Bretwalda styled themselves as kings of the southern English, or simply as kings of the English, Offa was always the king of Mercia. Older scholarship imagined that through his annexation and the expansion of his authority, he was trying to unify the English. But modern views are that he was simply trying to expand Mercian authority. He wasn't forming England. He was expanding Mercia. And he was so good at it, that his kingdom surpassed even that of King Aethelbald. With his successes, Offa's rule was becoming a great deal more complex than the early Bretwaldas. His endorsements of land grants went well beyond the crude signings of previous kings, and highlight how Mercia was becoming a proper medieval kingdom, with an elaborate administration and bureaucracy. And that was helped along by Offa's relationship with Rome. He knew how powerful the church was. And unlike his predecessor, he didn't seek to antagonize the clergy, nor did he simply seek to keep the church happy through donations. Instead, Offa fully embraced what the church had to offer and tried to harness the full extent of the Christian apparatus while also directly dealing with papal envoys. Mercia was becoming the political center of English life south of the Humber. No longer were we dealing with kings surviving on an individual basis and through direct influence. Instead, with Offa, we see how intricate the English kingdoms were becoming, and how through things like delegation and international trade, they were able to grow significantly beyond anything their predecessors in the 6th century could have imagined. We're not dealing with a king who ruled simply because he had the best psychopathic peacocks in his warband and he was able to keep them happy. Now we're moving into a stage of monarchy where rule was becoming the exclusive right of the ruling class and not due to a connection with a legendary ancestor like Woden, but through a combination of power, wealth, and sanction by the Christian god. So while he does appear to have been rather scary, Offa was also incredibly powerful. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>